Last week we got to whoop, there we go. Last week we got to hear from uh, Bauer as he preached from Hebrews 10 on the call to gather as God's people. And there are lessons, similar lessons this week from from the church in Antioch. So we're going to look at the church in Antioch and learn from them this week. And as you perhaps remember, if you've been with us, the flow of the story, the gospel has uh, changed people's lives and informed uh, God's people, brought God's people together. Uh, and we saw the activity of God through the gospel and the power of the Spirit informing the church in Jerusalem. We saw the Spirit poured out and then the witness of God's people and then all the wonderful things that God did and all the obstacles that were overcome that face that church. And the story has continued and now we start to see a transition from the center of gravity in the story being Jerusalem to the center of gravity really being Antioch and then the mission beyond. So this part of the story is a key part as we, we start to learn about this church in Antioch, as we look at the formation and the character of this church in Antioch. So there's much to learn here. So before we do that, let's pray and ask God to speak to us. Because ultimately, we, as we look at His Word, we want to hear from Him. We want to encounter Him. So let's ask Him for that. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You. Thank You for all that You have planned today. Here, Lord, it's amazing to think that the God of the universe, the infinite God, the God over all time, would care enough about this little group of people meeting here in Haverhill in 2010. In your great compassion, Lord, you very much desire for us to hear from you. And Lord, because of your spirit in us, we cry out the same, Lord, speak to us. Speak to us. We, we live by your word. And there's no life apart from your word. So speak to us. Grant us life that is true life. And may you be glorified in it, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Acts chapter 11, we'll look at verses 19 through 30. As the gospel reaches this area of Antioch. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great uh, sorry, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, 
to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Acts chapter 11, 19 through 30. This is a window into this church in Antioch, the formation of this church, and really the character of this church. And this church plays a critical role in the expanding witness of God's people that we see in the book of Acts, and that we ourselves are, in this day and age, called to as well. They played a critical role in this expansion. And it is a really wonderful, captivating picture of a church that is alive. A church that is truly alive. And there are many lessons to learn from this church that is alive And so we're going to take time today to look at some of those lessons. We're going to see how this church is alive through the gospel, through the proclamation and teaching of the gospel. We're going to see that it's a church that is alive amidst a diverse harvest. It's a church that is alive to live out the message. It's a church that's alive to deploy the model of what God has done and a church that is ultimately alive by the grace of God. This church started in Antioch. And Antioch was a large city in in its day. Uh, The city itself still exists. In its day, it was about half a million people. Half a million people. It was the third largest, I believe, the third largest city in the Roman Empire of the day. Uh, It's in modern day, uh, it's uh, it's southeast, actually, of modern day Turkey, uh, north of Syria. Uh, it's It's about 50 miles from the coast, and it was a crossroads. A, a crossroads of trade, and there were people there of all sorts. There were Jews, there were Romans, there were Greeks, there were Syrians, there were Africans, there were Gauls, there were Persians. They all were living in this melting pot of cultures there in Antioch. And as the story unfolds, the gospel comes. Did you notice in the story how the church got started? Was it that, that the apostles thought, you know, let's, let's send a crew up there, and we're going to have the crew set themselves up and they're going to, they're going to start a, a marketing campaign and put up some billboards. Have you been to church lately? Uh, and, and, and the people are going to come in and they're going to start this church and they're going to have a great children's program and, and they're going to just have a, a really nice worship facility and uh, they're going to use Facebook and all these other things and get things going. They're going to, they're going to serve the community in a way that's like really distinguishes them and, and that's, it's, it's going to go. Now, there's nothing wrong with, I don't think, any of those things. They can be appropriate. But, but is that how this church got rolling, this church in Antioch? It says, on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Preaching the Lord Jesus. These people went to Antioch and they, they stepped across some cultural boundaries that were there and they started sharing Jesus Christ, the truth of Jesus Christ with the people. And it says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This church was alive through the proclamation and teaching of the gospel, the good news of Christ, and all that that means. They, they taught about Jesus Christ, this God-man who came to live a righteous life to fulfill all righteousness, this, this one sent of God who lived this perfect life and then offered up Himself on the cross to pay for sins, to satisfy the justice of God for sinners on the cross. 
The truth of, of, of Jesus Christ, of the Gospel, of this Savior who not only suffered and paid for sin, but rose again on the third day, victorious over sin and death, and ascended and reigns and is returning. That truth, they shared that truth. And that truth was the power to form this church. And it's so easy for us to think that the gospel message is just, I've been there, done that. But it isn't. It's the power of God for the salvation for all who believe. And it isn't just a story that's a story. It's a promise of God. It's the proclamation of the fulfillment of all that God has planned to do. It is the apex of the display of the glory of God. It's not just a story, though it is a story. It's much more. It's the power of God. It is more powerful than anything else in the entire universe. And the the proclamation of that story, when that story is told... God Himself enters into the equation and the power of the Spirit and and changes lives and works salvation and works wonders. And ultimately, through that story, through its proclamation, through its ultimate fulfillment, He will change the whole universe. And He invites us through the story to come and receive salvation, forgiveness for our sins, and come to know Him, be reconciled with Him, and become part of His story. It's an invitation. It's a promise. It's power. And it's the foundation of the church in Antioch. As that story was told, and it's a simple story. Christ died for our sins. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. The the core of the story is that simple. And yet it's the most profound story, the most powerful story, the most powerful thing in all the universe. I'm not saying that as they went, they necessarily knew all that and thought all those things. They just were so affected by the story themselves, they couldn't help talking to others about it. And as they did that, they found that God was at work and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. This church was formed by the gospel, by that story. And I would say it was also sustained and shaped and sent by the story. The gospel is not something that you hear merely to get in the kingdom. You hear the gospel, you respond, you're a believer, you're all set, move on to other things. It's not that, it's never that in Scripture. The gospel is not only what brings us in, invites us in, makes our salva- brings our salvation, it's not only that, but it's what sustains us, it's what instructs us, it's what, it's what teaches us, it's, what's, it, it's what refreshes us, it, what, it's what defines the Christian life. And if you read the Scriptures, you'll see that that's what the apostles do in the New Testament. They constantly, as they address the church, call them back to gospel truth and then the ramifications of that truth. That's all they do. It's really simple in some ways. And so this church not only was formed by the gospel, but it says as Saul was brought, Barnabas went and got Saul, and it says for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. The health, the ongoing health of this model church was grounded on the Spirit-empowered preaching and teaching and I would say sharing of the Gospel. As that Gospel came and was proclaimed, it brought life. And as that Gospel was taught and shared, it sustained life, it matured life, it, it propagated life. 
So the preaching and teaching of God's Word is not just an optional thing. It's where life comes from. It's where life is sustained. It is essential for us. It is central for us. The gospel is what defines us. Now, now, don't get me wrong here. Just a little qualifier. We don't say, you know, the gospel is really what matters and nothing else does at all. Uh, so, you know, as a church, we're just going to, you know, we're, we're the gospel preaching church, but, you know, we, we don't comb our hair, you know, we don't, we, don't, we don't wash our clothes, you know, we greet our guests, hi, oh, well, we preach the gospel, we may look disheveled, but we preach the gospel. No, there's other things that follow from the gospel. We want to take care of other things. It's not that those other things don't follow, so don't get me wrong. There's implications of the gospel, but the gospel is what powers and fuels and creates and sends the church. The gospel is like nuclear fuel. Do you guys uh, know that, that uh, we have submarines and we have aircraft carriers that are fueled by nuclear fuel? And, and aircraft carriers, the Nimitz class I think it is, aircraft carriers are, are nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. And the gospel is like that nuclear fuel and, and the aircraft carriers are really fantastic. Um, there probably maybe a couple of you have maybe served uh, in a carrier group. On that aircraft carrier are thousands of people. I think it's about 3,000 people on that aircraft carrier. And there's all sorts of things that go on in that aircraft carrier. They have, there's like 80 or so jets of various types. There's helicopters. There's, there's missile systems. There's all this. And then there's actually a whole carrier escort group. And I have no idea how many ships go with an escort group, but battleships, destroyers, all sorts of things, submarines, all go with that. It's quite an operation. But inside that aircraft carrier, there is an engine that is a nuclear-fueled reactor that runs on the fuel. And all the stuff that goes with the aircraft carrier and all, all the extras really really don't count for anything if there's not an engine driving the aircraft carrier and if there's not fuel for that engine. That aircraft carrier and ultimately the group is in a lot of trouble. It's dead in the water without that engine, without that fuel. And and it's interesting actually, those little, I think I've told this illustration before, they use little fuel pellets. They're like the size of an animal feed pellet. And there's enough of those fuel pellets that they can store to fuel that ship for 20 years. That's how powerful and potent that is. Well, the gospel is that fuel. The gospel truth, the gospel message is that fuel. And the engine that powers it, that runs on that fuel, is the teaching and the proclamation and the sharing of the gospel. It's as we fellowship with one another, as we speak the truth and love to one another. In Ephesians 4, it talks about that. That truthing in love is gospel truthing in love. It's not just raw truth. It's gospel truthing in love. As we share that truth in love, as, as those that are called to preach and teach, preach and proclaim and teach. That's the engine that fuels the aircraft carrier called King of Grace Church and any other true church. And us as we as a church are called to run on this fuel. We are called to run on the gospel. We are called to be powered by the gospel as we preach, as we proclaim, as we share the gospel. And it is wonderful to watch it at work. 
to see in our church, to watch the gospel at work, to watch this truth at work. And uh, we've been doing Alpha. Uh, we, we just did our second week of Alpha, and we have 20 or more folks coming. Um, and, uh, and it's just been such a delight. And really what we're doing in Alpha, the best thing that we do in Alpha really is just share Christ. We share the gospel. And we do it in an environment that's laid back and comfortable and non-threatening. We do it. We do it over food uh, and friendship, and we do it not forcing people to do anything, but they can listen and have a conversation there. And, and, but as, as we do that over time, the gospel starts to have its way. It starts to work in people's lives. Their eyes get opened, and they see Christ, and there's change. And it is wonderful to watch. It's wonderful to be part of Alpha and watch God do this over time. Uh, it, it's such a privilege, and we have folks here with us. We, we have uh, one brother we got to baptize and add as a member who came to Christ through our last Alpha session. We have a number of folks that are journeying towards a deeper walk with Christ through Alpha that are here with us. They come to worship with us, and we look forward to even more and more and more that the Lord, through the gospel proclaimed, would add to our numbers. The gospel has its work in Alpha. The gospel has its work in us as a church in, in ministering to us, sustaining us, maturing us, and sending us as well. It's really at the core of our fellowship as a church. Just think, what would it be like not to remember the gospel, not to have the gospel to go back to every week, every day? I mean, what hope could we really offer? What could I really say to those who are going through significant trials in life without the gospel? How could those who are struggling be comforted without the gospel? Why should those who are believers want to mature in Christ without the gospel? It doesn't work without the good news of Christ, without the truth of the gospel, without the wonder of our forgiveness and acceptance and our call to holiness and the power of God that we have in the gospel to break the power of sin and to call us to new life. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, for coming into the kingdom and progressing in the kingdom. And, and I, as a pastor, have a bird's eye view so often of, of the gospel at work in our church. And it's so wonderful to, to hear about what he does in care groups, hear about what he does in, in relationships, hear about what he does through the preaching on Sundays, hear about what he does in other contexts to sustain and to refresh and to call and to mature people in Christ. It's all from that fuel of the gospel through preaching and teaching. We as a church are committed to that. That's why Sundays and the preaching of God's word on Sundays is so important. That's why we do care groups. Care groups is a, another place in a more personal way to share with one another the truth of the gospel and the gospel implications together. That's what care groups really are about. It's about friendship and fellowship around the gospel. And it would be very effective, really, to simply each week just talk about the good news of Christ and what that means for us and to pray for one another in that and care for one another. That would be care groups, and that's what we do in care groups. We are committed to that. And also we are looking to start some growth groups as a church to help us Learn gospel implications and gospel truth and what the gospel calls us into in new life starting in October, the third week. We'll be doing that as well. The gospel, the good news of Christ, it's wonder that God himself, the Holy One, would die for sinners like me, like us. The wonder that he would 
trade his glory to purchase us. And then in that, further magnify his glory. That he would invite us in to walk with him, to serve his purposes. This wonderful truth, the gospel, is what fuels us, what leads us. And the teaching and proclamation and the sharing is the engine that uses that fuel. A question for us and for you is, are you making this a priority for your life? Do you understand this aspect of the church? Do you understand your part in it? For yeah, I am called, yes, I am called to to preach the gospel and teach, and others in our church, other leaders teach as well. But all of us are called to share the gospel one with another, to remind one another of these truths, and to be faithful to witness to the world of that truth. We all have a part to play. We all are little engines, in a sense, for the aircraft carrier. And we all have a responsibility. So are you coming to church on Sunday with that in mind? That I'm part of this thing. That God wants to work through the gospel as I... I Relate to those. And and maybe it's just one little thing to say. A way to pray, to reach out. But He has work for me to do. May none of us come here on Sunday or any other gathering cold. Have you... Do you know what I mean when I say that? Come into something cold without any preparation, without any expectation? We're not to come here that way. I would encourage you to come prepared to partake in ministry on Sunday in some way. That you pray for your Sundays, and many of you do this. I, I, it's, by and large, people come prepared. But, but come prepared. Pray. Pray the night before. Get to bed early. Make it a point to get ready early, to come here, to be here on time, to engage in really the most important two hours of the week where God is going to do wonders through the gospel. Don't come in cold. That, that's, we don't want to do that. We, can you imagine doing that on the job if you had an important meeting? The next day, just walking in and walking right into that meeting, you know, I have no idea what I'm going to say. I don't even know what the meeting's about, but I'm here. You know you can't do that, and, and, and uh, you know you'd be in trouble. Matter of fact, I remember from, from my own experience when I was an Army researcher, I went into a, a very important meeting, cold, uh, and I thought I could be okay, just kind of shooting from the hip. Uh, I was in, a, uh, in the morning, I was in this really intense panel meeting with experts, uh, and it was just a really intense meeting, and I had a, after lunch, I had this meeting with these army colonels, all these important people, and, um, and it was about this particular test facility that we had that, that was an accelerated testing, and without getting too technical, it was an accelerating testing program that allowed us to evaluate army equipment to see how it would fail eventually, and, and then there was a way to model it uh, economically and, and predict and save money, and, there, and it wasn't that complicated how it worked. But I, I was at this intense meeting. I thought, well, I'll just, I, you know, this is my job. I've been doing this for a long time. I talk to people all the time. You know, so I'm just going to, I'll have my lunch. Or Actually, I went right from the meeting to the other meeting. I didn't have lunch. Uh, I thought I'd just walk in and be like, you know, yo, colonels, let me tell you all about what this thing does. I walked in there, and I was the first speaker. And I was, I was like the, you know, I was the cleanup hitter type guy. I'm supposed to be saying something substantial. And they said, okay, uh, we're going to, you know, turn it over to Paul Buckley. He's going to tell us a little bit about why this facility works. And I said, oh, thanks for being here. Everybody, and, um, and totally blank, totally blank. I, I didn't remember. I just remembered this is a facility, and these are colonels here, and I'm supposed to say something here. Um, I, didn't, I didn't remember. I had no idea the connection between why accelerated testing would help the Army save money. I just, I just, and I was like, well, 
And so what I ended up saying was, you know, thank you for being here, and we're really excited about this uh, Accelerate Testing Program. And John here is going to tell you more about it. And I just turned it over to the next guy. (laughs) Yeah, it was embarrassing. Um, And everybody knew it, too. These guys are all sharp. They know this guy is just, you know, he's he's epic fail right here. Uh, And uh, my boss was gracious um, to me. But anyhow, I, I went in cold, and that's what happened. We're not to come here cold. We're not to come to care group cold. We're to come in knowing we have a part to play. And there's nothing better than to be part of what he's doing. There's nothing better than to come in. It doesn't mean you come in and you're, you're the center, you're the guy who's carrying the thing, but there's something God wants you to bring when you come. Something to share. Or even just coming to say, hey, I need help. That can be preparation. I'm coming here and I need help. Would you pray with me? But don't come cold. Recognize the church in Antioch and any church is alive because of people who are prepared to share and to receive the good news and to talk about it and fellowship around it. This church in Antioch was alive because of that gospel being preached and taught and shared. And we are alive for the same reason. This church was also alive to reach and in reaching a diverse harvest. It's a wonderful picture to look at this church, and there's some more in chapter 13, at the beginning of chapter 13 on this church. Uh, it, it was a church that was very diverse. I think we have some overheads to show uh, a verse from thir- uh, chapter 13. It lists the people in the church in chapter 13. It says that they were in the church of Antioch, prophets and teachers, and then it says Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now those are just a bunch of funny names to us, but they actually are a quite diverse group of people. We have Barnabas. He is a Greek-speaking Jew from Cyprus. Simeon, a dark-skinned man most likely, perhaps from Africa. Lucius from Cyrene in North Africa. Menain, he's a childhood friend of Herod. He grew up around Herod, who was a, a half-Jew. And then Saul, this devout Hebraic Jew. What a mix, what a diversity of leadership. Now, these are the leaders. It's diverse. And this church was born in diversity. It went to a city that was a diverse city, and somehow there were some of the believers from Cyprus and Cyrene because perhaps they had grown up amidst diversity and understood God was not troubled by diversity, wanted to work through it. They, they jumped the cultural barriers that were there and started sharing with these diverse folks. And this city was a diverse city. And people came to Christ. And this church, this church was comprised of all these different sorts of folks. And what a glorious picture it is. You know, God doesn't want segregated churches. God doesn't want churches that are all the same, socioeconomically, ethnically. He doesn't want that. I can't find anywhere in the Bible that would do anything but come against that. Yet it is an idea that's out there, that the best way to grow as a church is to narrow your church. Attract people like yourself. Now, I think that it is a good-hearted intention because the, the goal of that thinking is to grow and to reach people. And they'll say, well, you know, let the other people that are different reach the different people. But I don't see it in the book. 
And you miss out on the beauty of diversity and unity when you do that. There is something beautiful about diverse people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, coming together and united tightly in Christ. That's how beauty works, is it not? It's not beauty, unity, and diversity wed together. It's not the beauty when we look at things in creation. It's not it ultimately diverse things brought together in some unity. That's, I think, uh, the definition of beauty. If someone studied aesthetics, you, I think that's correct. Think about painting, right? You don't paint a beautiful picture by having a white canvas and taking your white paintbrush and start painting on that canvas something. You don't see anything, right? How do you make a beautiful painting? You take a canvas, I guess a white one, and you use different colors. And if you're a really good artist, you use different textures and different strokes. So it's texture, color, diversity, all doing one thing, perhaps portraying a person or a landscape. This church in Antioch was the same. And the landscape and the beauty it was portraying was Christ and what he can do. Because the world can't do that. The world cannot bring diverse people together. The world separates diverse people. But the gospel brings them together. And I'm so glad that God's building that here. And I I know it's your prayer. It's my prayer. God, do it more and more and more. May our church reflect the diversity of this area of the Merrimack Valley, Greater Haverhill area. May there be the same diversity here. And may it be shown, and I'm asking God for this, I've been asking for years, God, would you do that in our leadership too, that we as a church would represent the glory of the gospel, that it brings diverse people together and shows forth the glory of Christ. A practical challenge for us in building this, is not only to pray and ask God for this, not only to reach out to those in sharing the gospel with those that are different, but to look around our church at one another and refuse to only associate with those that are like you. We always tend to do that. We want to be with those we're like, because it's easiest, isn't it? It's easiest to be with those who have the same sense of humor, like to do the same things. But the gospel comes in, And teaches us that God himself took this amazing initiative to send his son, to sacrifice his son for me, to purchase me so that I might belong to him. And he cares for the nations. He wants all peoples to be purchased for him and belong to him. And if he's done this for me, and if this is his plan, then I want to be part of it by reaching out to those different than me. I will refuse to take the easy road to only relate to those like me. So a practical, helpful way for us as a church is just to look around the church at those that are different, socioeconomically, personality-wise, career-wise, ethnically-wise. And I would suggest one simple step, and some of you do this already. Invite them to your home for lunch on Sunday. Find somebody that's different, that you haven't hung out with in a while, that maybe he's a guest, and say, would you like to come over and eat with us this Sunday or next? We'd love to have you. Get to know them. Listen to them. Draw them out. And as you share, make part of your time together sharing about the good news of Christ. Ask them, what's the Lord doing? How has the truth of Christ been affecting your life? Or what's been your greatest struggle? Or things like that. So we're building together. It's a very practical way. It doesn't mean you have to do it every Sunday, but I would ask you to consider at least once a month on a Sunday 
Invite someone else back home for lunch. Some of us, it's hard. I know you may live far away. Maybe there's some other creative things you can do. Go out to lunch together. But that's a practical way, I think, for us to apply what we see here and the beauty of unity amidst diversity. This was a church also not only alive in diversity for God's glory, but alive to live out the message. It says in our short little section, there's just so much here. There's so much to learn from and draw from. It says here in our short section that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And it's interesting how where, where Luke puts that in the flow here, we watch that he talks about the gospel going and, and people come to the Lord. Then they send Barnabas and Barnabas comes to encourage them and, and call them. And then he gets Saul and brings Saul. And then they teach the gospel. They teach for a whole year. And then it says this little blurb at the end of verse 26, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Maybe you could replace that and with so. So as the gospel is preached and taught and proclaimed and shared, people change in such a way that the world around them, I don't think it's the Christians themselves, they didn't call themselves Christians at this time, but the world around them says, you know what, these guys are Christ followers. I recognize them. I recognize these Christ followers. Isn't it wonderful when by God's grace people recognize Christ in us? I I was at Starbucks this past week, and um, there's a guy who works there and getting to know. And uh, we were just chatting, and he he said, uh, he basically, uh, I can't remember how the conversation went. I always have this wonderful uh, trump card I can pull out and talk to people. I say I'm a pastor and leads to spiritual things, which is nice. So he, I think I said I'm a pastor, and he said, you know what? I thought so. Now, you know, pastor or Christian, either way. And then he started identifying other people that had come to Starbucks that I knew that were believers. And he knew they were believers too. And he, you know what he said? It's just, just by looking at you, I see something different there. Isn't that wonderful? No credit to me, believe me. And the folks in Antioch were so affected by the life of Christ that when the, those around them saw them, they said, these guys are little Christ. They're Christ followers. Christians means Christ followers. And it probably was something that was both a compliment and a tease to them. You know, you're, you're a Christ follower. But they so showed the life of Christ that they won this wonderful title. John Calvin says, I heard we have this quote about this, this was no small honor that the holy name of Christian began there for all the whole world. But when they began plainly to be called that, which they were, that which they were, the use of the name served greatly to set forth the glory of Christ. Because by this means they referred all their religion, all their faith, unto Christ alone. Isn't it glorious to be called a Christian? It says it's all about Christ. This was, therefore, a most excellent worship for the city of Antioch, that Christ brought forth his name thence like a standard, where it might be made known to all the world that there was some people whose captain was Christ and which did glory in his name. It is a tribute to the church in Antioch that they were first called Christians there. They were living out the truth of the message. There's more in the passage that shows us that as well. At the end of the passage, we see that there's a group that comes from Jerusalem to Antioch, comes north, comes down, I guess because Jerusalem's on a mountain, they come down, but it's north. I don't know why I always think of north as going up, but anyhow. Um, 
And one of them named Agabus. Agabus stands up and he foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the whole world. And we will spend time, by the way, uh, after next week. Next week, uh, Jeff is bringing us chapter 12. I'm going to take time to talk about this whole idea of prophets and prophecy, New Testament prophecy. This guy Agabus comes and he predicts that there's going to be a famine, which indeed happened, uh, as Luke notes. And look at the response of the church. So the disciples determined. Everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. That's not a throwaway sentence. Can you imagine if somebody said, someone that was a reliable prophetic person, had a really high batting average, came up and said to us as a church, there's going to be a terrible famine that's going to come here and everywhere else. What might be your response? I know what my response would be like, oh no, sky is falling. What are we going to do? And start thinking about myself. I've got to start hoarding stuff. I've got to start, you know, I've got to, I've got to do stuff. I've got to hoard stuff. And we've got to, you know, we've got to somehow endure this thing. That's not what goes on here. They, they don't think about themselves. What do they think about? We want to send relief to the brothers in Judea because they knew that they were particularly poor there. That is a sign of the fruit of the gospel that they would be concerned, that they would care for the church in Jerusalem so much so that they would determine to send relief according to their ability. Instead of circling the wagons amidst a a famine, they, they believe God. And they're so affected by, I believe, by God and by His grace and the promises of the gospel that they're not worried about themselves. And so they're freed up to give to the need. They believe God and they know, they believe His promises and they want to be partners with what He's doing. And so they give in faith instead of circling the wagons. What, what a bunch of nuts to give away stuff in an economic downtime, in a recession. That makes no sense to, to, to give and try to expand the kingdom with your finances when things are tough, but that's what they do. Reminds me of some other nuts that I know in King of Grace. I've said this before. God is doing stuff and expanding what He's doing in and through us, and it's a wonderful privilege, undeserved, by grace. But nevertheless, it's occurring. God is working. And amidst a very severe recession, the, the, the worst since the Depression, you guys have believed God and bought a building purchased a building or started to purchase a building and now we are together looking to God to finalize the purchase of our building, not just so we can have, not that we can have a comfortable home, that we might promote the mission, that through this building we might more effectively preach and teach and share and proclaim and reach our area with the gospel and do more in keeping with the gospel in terms of fruit. And it is wonderful to see your faith. And let's continue to trust God. As we move forward, we as a church are trusting God. There's, we have some money set aside. Uh, thank God, 55000 We need some more. Let's trust the Lord to, to finish it with 65000 over the next few months. Let's see what the Lord does. Let's come at it like those from Antioch. Let's come at it believing God, aware of the gospel, aware of what he's done to give to us, and excited about partnering with him in the mission. Not thinking, how do I circle the wagons? How do I survive this recession? 
That's not, those aren't God thoughts. Now, don't get me wrong, there's wisdom, all right? And we're going to walk wisely. Uh, we have a, an advisory team. We're walking wisely through the purchase of our building. We're going to try to be wise, but we're not going to let the recession and, and those things define how we approach this. We're going to let the gospel define it. We'll walk in wisdom, but we're going to walk in faith. We're going to look to the Lord, and we're going to have our eyes towards the mission, to the expansion of the kingdom. And I can't wait to see what God does. These folks were alive and living out the message. Let us, too, as we walk in the truth of the message, see God glorified. They were alive to multiply the model as well. A couple other things to hit. And there's just so much here. You could, each one of these could be its own message. They, these guys were alive to multiply the model. I, they weren't just bent on being a good church themselves. They wanted to expand. And so Barnabas, I think, as a good leader and a good mentor, as he went there, he's just a great guy. He goes, he's, he's glad because he sees the grace of God. He sees what's going on. He's, he's encouraging them to remain true. But he isn't thinking, okay, this could be a good deal for me, you know. Set myself up as a, the lead pastor here. We got, you know, we got our couple hundred people. I like this deal. We'll just kind of be cozy us, and I'll be the leader. No, he's not thinking that. He's thinking what the Lord is doing. He's thinking about growing this church, expanding this church. He's thinking of his friend Saul. And so he goes, he goes to Tarsus, and he has to look for him. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, so it says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul in, in verse 25. And in and, and the sense there, too, uh, the word look for uh, in English is it's look for, but it's not just like easy, like, you know, he just showed up in Tarsus and he knew that Saul lived. It's like he searched for. He, he took some time to, to really go out and find Saul. It wasn't easy. He, and he finally found him and he brought him to Antioch because he knew this was a brother who was called, who had a call in his life. He knew this was a brother who was gifted and he wanted to, to be part of what God was doing and see him raised up in the church and see that mission fulfilled. He was thinking about the mission. He was thinking about the, the expansion of the kingdom, not himself. And he, so he went and found Saul and ultimately Saul superseded Barnabas in authority and effectiveness because Barnabas had a heart to see the mission expanded, to see the kingdom expanded, to see the gospel have more and more work. And this whole church, it looks like they were, they were very good at raising leaders up. And then we see later on that, that these leaders in chapter 13 gathered together, they're worshiping the Lord. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They sent their two best guys off. Their two best guys, I believe, they sent them off for the mission. That, that is faith. That is joy, I believe. I don't think they, they went, oh man, oh Lord, I guess since you said it, we've got to do it. I believe there was faith. There was yes. And they sent them off. And if you read through the story, which we'll do, you see this, this wonderful interchange. They go off. They do all these glorious things. They come back where? To the church in Antioch to say, this is what God's done. And the church in Antioch is excited to hear there's a partnership that continues. This church is alive to multiply the model, to see leaders raised up and to see churches planted. And you know what? That's a sign of the fruit of the gospel. When, when the gospel affects you, when you see that Christ is given for us 
for the nations, for God's glory, you can't sit on it. And you can't and you shouldn't sit on a church either. And I'm so happy that from day one, we as a church have determined by God's grace to be a church planting church. To be a church that, to be a church that raises up leaders. We're not going to be idle. And I would love it if there's a Saul someday who comes and supersedes me. You have another lead pastor that's more gifted, more able than I would ever be. That would be my delight. And if I can serve, that's great. That's because of the gospel. That should be all our hearts. And I'm so glad to see guys being raised up. I'm, I am thankful and I am praying for God's work in Phil's life. As he, as he serves us in a very challenging role. Faithful. I want to see him grow. I want to see this brother raised up when he, when, and made ready for the ministry. I want to see many others too. And just so you know, if you're not one that I've been talking to, there's a lot of, lot of folks, not just one, that I've been talking to and talking like this. And there are some possibilities for our church on the horizon for church planting. There may be distant on the horizon in some ways, but God is doing things, and I just wonder what he's going to do. I want us to have a heart. I want us to have a heart to plant and to see other churches planted in this region. It would be a delight. I'm praying for Londonderry, Manchester area, just so you know. I've been praying for a while. I know others are. Let's ask God to do something. Let's ask God to raise up those to go there and serve. Let's ask him this year. And maybe at the end of the year even, we'll see something happen. We don't want to sit on this stuff. We want to see healthy churches planted on the gospel, bringing God glory, affecting lives, seeing the lost one. We can't sit on it. May God do great things. The band could come up as we close. Finally, this church is alive. Not, not only finally, but most importantly, most significantly, most wonderfully, this church in Antioch is alive by the grace of God. It's alive by the grace of God. And there are hints throughout the the paragraph about this. We see early on, it says that the hand of the Lord was with them. They shared Jesus Christ. They shared the gospel. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And then later on, Barnabas comes. And what does Barnabas come to do? He doesn't just come to to somehow establish some structure and and those sort of things. I think it's part of what he does. But it says, and when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. What Barnabas did, his first thing at coming was to see what was going on. And what did he see? He saw the grace of God at work. How did he see the grace of God at work? He saw the grace of God at work and changed lives in the gospel. He saw the grace of God at work and people who were formerly enemies, who were formerly walking their own way, probably doing all sorts of horrible things, being turned around and living now for Christ and enjoying that, receiving, having received forgiveness, walking with God. He saw the grace of God, I think, in them corporately, that they were not only individually turned around walking with God, but they were walking together so that when the, the, the world looked at them as a group, said, look, Christ followers... For if they only walked individually, not together, they wouldn't have said that. He saw the grace of God at work. That ultimately is what's going on here, and we can't miss that point. All these other things are important, but ultimately it's the grace of God 
the sovereign grace of God. God Himself is alone good and gracious, and no other is. Left to ourselves, we are wicked and selfish. And if you don't believe that, just, just wait a while. Just wait a while. Look at yourself, how you drive. Look at your thought life. Whatever it takes. He alone is good. He alone is gracious. And He alone, in His amazing mercy, has determined to rescue sinners. Many, many, many to His name. And to bring us into everlasting joy. He is gracious. He is the one. He is the one who calls sinners to Himself and forms the church. It is the grace of God, and we must ground ourselves ultimately on that. It is the sovereign grace of God. It's in our name because it's in the Scriptures. It's the sovereign grace of God. And He gets the glory. He's he's our foundation, and there's no other. And He's all we need. This church was affected by the grace of God, and I am so thankful for the grace of God in our lives. When, when Barnabas saw the grace of God, what did he do? What was his first reaction when he saw the grace of God? He was glad. He was glad. If we get the sovereign grace of God, we too will be glad. We will recognize this is God's work. He has done it. He has been gracious. It's His initiative and He's going to finish it. And my hope is in Him. And it doesn't depend on me. Yes, I have a part to play. I have a role to play. But it's God Himself in His sovereign grace. That's the initiator and the completer. Therefore, we can be glad even if times are hard or whatever. We can be glad. We can know joy. The Gospel, when understood, when we understand the grace of God, it produces gladness. And as we seek to be a church like Antioch, may we be glad at what God's doing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your sovereign grace. None of us would be here without you and your goodness. We have no claim. We, we were not smarter than others. We were not more spiritual than others. You, in your mercy, reached out and rescued us. And we're here by your sovereign grace. And we as a church are sustained by your sovereign grace. And we will move forward by your sovereign grace. Lord, if, we're, if there's going to be anything we do in the future, it will be by your sovereign grace. And I pray, Lord, would you give us faith and would you give us joy as we walk in these things, even as Antioch did, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If if we